On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Becky Bray Rankin all about rubrics. She's going to give us some tools and tips and insights for building rubrics and using them with students so that they are set on a path towards learning and proficiency. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Hola, mis amigos. Bonjour, mes amis. Thank you so much for being with me today. So I'm going to throw the word rubric out to you. And what do you think about when you hear this word rubric? We as teachers talk about them. We learn in education programs that they're useful. But I have the pleasure today of being joined by Becky Bray Rankin, who's going to help us to kind of reframe when we think about rubrics and actually using them as a pathway for learning and maybe not just as an assessment tool. Correct me if I'm wrong with that, Becky. That's exactly the way it should go. Every piece of instruction should have a rubric attached. All right. So welcome on in, Becky. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joshua. I would love to tell your story, what I know about it. I know you just got back from a pretty amazing sailing trip and an exotic place. So I think you could probably talk about yourself a little better than I can. So who is Becky? So we did just get back from some time in French Polynesia. We do sailing with friends exotically anytime we can. So it was really fun to be able to use my French in a culture that I had never been a part of before and fun to bring that back. Um, to the classroom. And outside of that, I love to garden. Um, I love my dog. I work in Lexington at the high school. I'm a French teacher there. Um, I'm part of several boards for world language educators and just like love to give back to my community. Excellent. What was your sort of education start? What was your college experience? When did you connect with French? What is that story for you? Right. So French was in sixth grade. We had one of three languages, each for a trimester. I started with German, moved on to Spanish. The French teacher was the coolest. And we had baguettes every Friday in class and sometimes on great days, croissants. So who wouldn't pick that? <laughs> right. I I love hearing when the French teacher was cool because I'm a French teacher as well. And we often get a bad rap, you know, and particularly historically, you know, and I just I love hearing that. Yeah. So let's talk about this word rubric, you know, and I love the the title that you use when you do your workshops on this. What is the title you use? The thingamabob that does the job. Yeah. So, so awesome. It just, it's sort of like, yeah, this is something you can use. It's, it's totally viable and you could, you got this, you know, I love that you, you use that. So it makes it very manageable for teachers, right? So assuming that there was a time in your teaching that was sort of the pre-rubric, the pre-discovery of it. What did what did teaching look like? I think it was centered a lot more around um, 
more like tests and quizzes and really assessing students to find out what they don't know rather than what they do know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, taking off points for this, that, or the other thing, um, offering feedback in a way that took me a really long time. And then the kids didn't really take advantage of that feedback. So it was sort of just this like one stop, like we take a test and then we move on. It wasn't part of this process and part of sort of a growth cycle it was just very like minutia based mm-hmm. and not not wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say, that, I need to change. It was that that time of teaching, which still exists, unfortunately, in a lot of our classrooms. But it's that time of teaching where it was. Let me just tell you what you did wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, let's focus on that. And um, you, as a student, will feel joy in that process. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this whole idea of deficit, like what did kids not get over COVID? It's like, I don't know, my kids got a lot. Like, let's celebrate what they did get and what skills they did um, sort of acquire or work on over this time Mm -hmm. period. Whether or not you were your best teacher this year, like I'm sure the students got a ton. So like, let's focus on the positive and celebrate what they did get. What was it that in your classroom you're like, uh... This this is not the road I wanted to be going down with my students. This is not the experience I want them to have. And you discovered rubrics. Maybe you rediscovered. What was that process? So I have to attribute it to Skolt. Um, mm-hmm. My first two years of teaching, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was promoted way too fast. I was 23, 24, taking kids abroad and in charge of 25 members, K-12, in a charter district. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, I need more education. So I applied to go to Skolt, and I went to a workshop on IPAs. Mm-hmm. And I Can you tell us that- what Skolt is real quick? Oh, yeah. Skolt is a Southern Council on Language Teaching. I'm going to guess it's a regional version of Axel. You're at Skolt and IPAs. I'm at workshop on <laughs> IPAs. So let's do that alphabet soup. That's integrated performance assessments. Mm-hmm. And at that time, um, you know, this is the early 2000s. I would say it's like on the newer end than it is now. And I was just blown away. I remember sending emails back to my department being like, this is unbelievable. We can ask what kids know and they can prove to us what they know. And then there's these things called rubrics that sort of tell them what they know and celebrate that. And we're just going to start doing this tomorrow. So everyone get ready. (laughs) So So that's the, there's nothing like coming back from a conference and being gung ho. Right. The, it's so inspirational. That's why I think the conferences are so important, because even if it's something you've seen before, that you get rejuvenated. How did your uh, your colleagues react to that, that coming back and let's try this? They were also gung ho, just because I mm-hmm. think I was so excited about the way that we could turn this around from this like testing and grading and point based mentality to sort of this project based and rubric based and more celebratory way of doing things. And we ended up um, sort of putting rubrics into our objectives, the way that we wrote our objectives. So there was always like a level up objective and sort of like a scaffolded objective. And we sort of, with some extra time over the summer as an apartment, we were really able to think about each day, each lesson, each assessment, um, kind of on this idea of growth mindset and on rubrics. And so it really became an integral part of teaching there. So did you collaborate with common rubrics for your department at that point? What did that process look like? Um, So the department was like pretty tiny. There were two French teachers and two Spanish teachers. So um, I just kind of told everyone what to do and they did it. (laughs) (laughs) So I suppose we had common rubrics. 
But honestly, I think we probably photocopied pages out of the IPA book. Sorry, Agful, we probably should have that. <laughs> but I think that's what we did. I think we just like you circled. sourced from them. You sourced, we sourced. from them. <laughs> we were so heavily inspired by them that it looked yes. extremely similar. And uh, we just used those, um, especially the um, the presentational rubric, I think, was the one that we kept coming back to, because that's the easiest one, I think, to sort of hang on to. Focus on, on the writing when you say presentational that way. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think made that the easiest? I think, so as language teachers, you know, lots of years ago now, I think writing was our first entree into project-based assessment. And I think it was easy to have students like write an email or write an essay or write a response. And that's something that you might have at the end of the test. And so it was easy for me to take that unauthentic, decontextualized text-based question and sort of turn it into something that's a little bit more real life. And then I think also as world language teachers, um, you know, a legacy practice is doing presentation. So even presentational speaking, but again, it would be really based on whatever, we didn't really have a textbook where I was teaching, but it would be based on whatever that theme was and kind of decontextualized. Mm -hmm. And with this IPA idea, I was contextualizing together some sort of authentic resource along with some sort of speaking or reading or writing activities. Um, And then being able to tell kids at the end, like, this is what I think you can do based on your performance. But there are also benefits in that rubric for the teacher and what they learn from it as sort of a formative experience. So what has been your experience with what you learn from using rubrics with students? The way that I tend to do rubrics is to highlight or circle kind of visually on the rubric where the kid is. And so if they're between meeting expectations, which is sort of my target, and exceeding expectations, it's visual. It's like a circle in between Mm -hmm. the two. And so I can really see from one assessment to the next or over the course of a single assessment with multiple students, I can kind of see where students are easily leveling up and where students really need help. And sometimes it's obvious, right? As teachers, we actually do a ton of data manipulation in our heads. I have this like interpersonal writing thing I do with a lot of my students and at least 20% forget to like respond to their colleagues. They write their first post, but they don't do the response. And so time and time again on this rubric, I'm circling like not enough evidence (laughs) because Mm -hmm. you didn't respond to your colleagues. And so that's something that we kind of have in our head. But when you've got that information on a rubric and you're handing it back to the student, you're like, this is what happened the last time too. Like, let's have a conversation about it. I think it really helps you get into that groove and offer feed forward for students. Mm-hmm. So rubrics are definitely feedback, like how was your performance? Mm-hmm. But then changing that tone to what can you do next time? Because we're going to use this rubric again. Mm-hmm. Where can you level up next time? How can you meet my expectations next time? And what does that feed forward information look like for students so i guess you're saying visually you you have it marked on the on the rubric that not enough information or didn't go deep enough whatever the language is so then how do you communicate to the student like where they go to go deeper yeah great so oftentimes i'll you know circle whatever it is on the rubric and underneath i'll use the language this time you chose to next time you could and it's very like... Could you say that one more time? That was so important. Yeah, this time you chose to, next time you could. Gold, gold. Yeah, I wish I could attribute who it came from. I think it was a Neckful conference. So an example, so, you know, this time you chose to not respond to your classmates. Next time you could try responding to one. 
And it's just like so simple, but there's some students who don't really take that feedback and turn it into feed forward. And so you're doing it in those little things. And sometimes if a kid does stellar work, like this time you chose to put a lot of effort into this awesome job. Next time you could try to scale it back. You have a lot of things going on in your life. So you could use this as part of your SEL curriculum too. It's not just about what they did great and not oh, so great. Yeah, so it's, it's that student connection as well not just sort of the the language feedback feed forward. So can we look a little bit deeper at the idea of the IPAs and you're creating these, these rubrics and uh, I believe you sort of have this cycle that you use. Yeah. So it's learn, practice, assess, reflect, L-P-A-R. And I wish that there were a better acronym than L-P-A-R. It doesn't roll off the tongue like IPA does learn, practice, assess, reflect. And I think that this sort of cycle happens in any task that you give students, any lesson that you create for students, any unit you create for students. It's sort of that cycle. You're going to teach it. They're going to work on it. You're going to give some sort of assessment, and then you need to reflect on it. And I'm a huge proponent of reflection. If you think about it, rubrics are kind of for teacher feedback to students, and reflection is for self-feedback for students. And so if they don't have that chance to think about what your reflection is and what their reflection is, they're not going to have that opportunity to move forward. So in the LPAR cycle, what it's really important to do is have your rubrics in every single spot. So when you open up the lesson telling kids what their objective is by the end of the unit or by the end of the day or by the end of the task, that's something that I think we all think about. But match it up with your rubric. Be really clear with kids. These are the areas that I'm Mm -hmm. asking you to look at today. Um, it, it really is easy to look at in sort of the unit assessment. So if you know what your performance goal is at the end and you give them the rubric in the learn part, then they can sort of check off their own learning as they go. And then when you do it in the practice part, they can practice against the rubric. They can reflect on it. They can sort of say, oh, this is where I needed a little bit more help. You can offer some differentiation. When you actually assessment assess them, they could have the rubric right there with them so that they know exactly what you're going to be looking for in what they're doing. And then when you give them the feedback, again, they have that rubric with them so that they can have that um, feedback feed forward cycle. So I'm assuming that you have different rubrics for, well, essentially different rubrics for the different communication modes. So you have your interpersonal, they might use similar language, but the, the skill looks different. So once you have those, say you have your interpersonal uh, rubric or your presentational writing rubric. Do you use that same rubric for every unit or do you sometimes tweak them? I do. I have like four rubrics I use all the time and I try to keep the language somewhat vague Mm -hmm. enough that I could like insert one word. So my three honors students, those are my sophomore babies. I love them. It's a class I've been teaching for a long time. And so I do, we do talk about precision. And so like whatever our grammar chunks are, whatever our language functions are, that's going to be inserted into my rubric, but 98% of the rubric is going to look the same for my interpersonal last unit and this unit. But of course, as they move up the proficiency, as they move forward on their proficiency journey, they're going to need to level up in different areas. And it might look a little bit different when they're intermediate mid, what their target is versus intermediate high. But yeah, I have like four go-to rubrics that change just a tiny bit depending on the activity. So you have the the language of your rubrics is such that when you say vague, it means that you could use it for a novice high or an intermediate mid because it's just based on 
the proficiency level. So you have to know like what's their text type, what's their proficiency level, what language they should be producing. So if you know that, oh, this is chunked phrases for novice high, that's what you know about the rubric. You don't have to say it in the rubric. And when you're using it for your level threes, which are in the intermediate realm, you're using the same rubric, but you know what their text type is. So is that sort of just, I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying when you say vague language. Yeah, I think there is some of that, that there's a few words that I can change to change the rubric from level to level. Um, So I agree with you. I would reframe a little bit that when I'm thinking vague, I'm thinking more about it could be almost any assignment. So if I have a presentational writing or presentational speaking on really any theme, there's one rubric that I could apply to that so that students can use that rubric over and over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. And just one or two words will need to change. Because what I don't do in my rubrics is having any sort of task completion portion of it. Um, So that means that it doesn't matter what my theme or sort of like what the writing is. If it's an email, I'm not necessarily asking for an email format within what I'm saying, but I'm really looking at the language functions that they're able to do. So that's a little bit more the vein Mm -hmm. I was going. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for that that clarification. When you're creating these these rubrics, what... What's the sort of point scale that you use? Is it a one, two, three? Is it a one through four, five? What has been the manageable, effective way for you? I have a couple of categories sort of like on the left, that first column. So things like content, impact, uh, comprehensibility. And then on the top, I have three columns. For me, it's the one over to the left, but I think a lot, a lot of rubrics go backwards. So the first is exceeding expectations. Mm-hmm. So that's my level up. The next is meeting expectations. So that's what my expectation is or my standard or the target. And then I have another category called not yet. Mm-hmm. And that category is not filled out on the rubric. I actually don't want to tell kids what it looks like to not meet my expectations. Mm-hmm. So it's really clear what it means to meet my expectations. So it talks about the type of phrases that they use, whether or not they use transition words, whether or not they're engaging their listener, whether or not they're negotiating for meaning. And then the level up is really clear. Here's another thing that you could do, not just an intro sentence, but like transitions within your sentence or not just one follow-up question, but like a detailed follow-up question and a reaction to that. So it offers those two levels really clearly on my rubrics. But then I don't tell them what not yet looks like. I let them show me what they think not yet looks like and then convince them to move on. I remember being in a Rick Wormley uh, workshop a number of years back, and he was saying, always just give them what he was using a five-point rubric. Like whenever they're doing something, just tell them what will get them a five. Don't tell them what will get them a three or a two because they'll be like, oh, well, Today, I don't have a ton of energy and I'm not really motivated, so I'm just going to go for the three today. Whereas if you just give the, these are my expectations and keep that center, then that's what they're going to go for. You know, have you, uh, it looks like what you're doing. So it's almost like a one, two, three scale. I love this. this I, I don't know if you use that. You don't, it's not a one, two, three, but it's sort of the meets or exceeds expectations. But it's the, it's the simplicity of that, which I think is so effective. You know, when I see rubrics that, you know, there's seven categories down and four or five points and there's 37, 36 boxes on the page and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just unwieldy. And I, I like your, your idea. So it's almost like a riff on the single point rubric. 
you know, where you have the three columns and you have in the middle where you have this is the expectation. And then you can say this is how you went above and you didn't quite meet it. You didn't quite meet it. So I can give you some feedback on how you can can get there. You know, it's just keeping that that simplicity in there is really important. It is. And Paul Sandrock said, you know, you want your rubric to mask your task, match your task. So if you have a task that's smaller, maybe you need a rubric that's smaller. And that unwieldy one you're talking about, that would be fantastic for like a portfolio mm-hmm. at the end of the year, because you've got a lot of different things you're looking for in all the different modes. But if you're just talking about a simple five minute conversation, there's no reason to have 25 indicators. Students, one thing that I love about my rubrics is it's all student friendly mm-hmm. language. They know exactly what these things mean. We talk about it. We use these rubrics all the time. But if you've got 35 things, the kids aren't going to look at 35 yeah. things. They can maybe take in three or four. And so you got to put those three or four front and center and easy for them to, to yeah. digest. So I... I'm looking at you as, wow, you have these amazing ideas about rubrics. I need to like listen back and get the, okay, this is what you're doing. This is what you can do next time. But is a rubric ever done for you? Like, what do, what are you always sort of working on? Like going down the road, making it better? Yeah, I do engage in a lot of reflection. And a lot of it is based on students and their feedback. So um, there's a story that uh, of a student who... Um, she really didn't like one piece of my rubric because it clashed with her culture. And so I was like, oh, I really have to think about how to be a better culturally competent, culturally responsive, culturally sustaining Mm -hmm. teacher and not really use this cultural piece, kind of strip that away make my rubrics a little bit more equitable. So that's one piece that I've been looking at. I've also been looking at uh, student-friendly language over a long period of time. And so if kids don't do something, my question is always, was it clear Uh, enough? And so I'll make sure I go back and make whatever is clear. And then honestly, simplifying. If I do anything to a rubric, it's take more words out because I really want to focus on what's essential. And so the rubric that I love the most that I use is an interpersonal Mm -hmm. writing rubric. And every time I take it out, I take one more word off the page. Mm -hmm. And it's really getting to the spot where kids exactly know what's there. They can take the pieces, they can take the words off of the rubric They can put their own quotes into the rubric to show me where they're at. They can say, this shows you that I meet expectations in impact. Mm -hmm. So they can really work with the rubric. And every time they work with it, I look at it, I was like, oh, that's not really what I meant. Or like, (laughs) oh, I could explain that more clearly. And the next time around, I try it again, I pilot it, and then we move forward with something different. And sometimes my change is wrong, and I go (laughs) back, and sometimes it's awesome. And so we use that moving forward. Yeah, I remember, I guess it was last summer, there was a, uh, an actful event. It was a virtual event. And uh, Rebecca Blue Wolf spoke at it. And she talked about putting your teaching through the colander. And what stays is what's essential and what goes through you really didn't need. And it sounds like that's what you're doing with your your teaching in general, but your rubrics, it's like, oh, let's put it through the colander and the words that stick are the essential ones. That's so true. And I think those are the words that really guide students and they do that feedback and that feed forward because the whole reason we're doing rubrics is so that students can walk further down in their journey to proficiency. So if the rubric isn't serving the students, then the rubric is doing nothing. So making sure that it's making sure that it has its ultimate goal in mind and making sure that it's achieving that is really where the gold lies in the rubric. Such amazing information that you're sharing with us about all of this. And I 
I love the the information we get about teaching. And I always like to take that and pivot to this idea of inspiration as well. You know, so it's sort of, I, I'm getting all of this, but then I need to be inspired to do something. And what what inspires you? Like, are there sort of those language influencers out there or books or conferences or blogs? Where does your inspiration come from? Well, serving on the MAFLA board, MAFLA is the Massachusetts um, World Language Organization. Uh, I think I get inspired by a lot of people on that board. We've got lots of professional developments and we bring people in like Leslie Braun and Greta, um, Thomas Sauer, and I'm able to be inspired by all of them. And then my colleagues on the board, like Tim Egan, um, and that's really fun for me. Uh, Kim Talbot also with Understanding by Design and Inclusivity. Uh, and then I think within my department, too, a lot of questions come up. I have a Spanish colleague, Ryan. We do a lot on reflection together and we push each other. And having that colleague that really helps you think and pushes you to a different spot. Um, I have another colleague, Rena, who we've been talking a lot about in the actual rubrics um, in the IPA section. Um you get to the bottom and for comprehensibility, the onus is on the listener to understand the speaker. Mm. And we're sort of like, how can we grade the listener when we're actually right. giving feedback to the speaker? Mm-hmm. And then maybe you've seen mm-hmm. on Twitter too, which is another huge spot for inspiration. Um, there's a whole conversation going about like, it shouldn't be the native speaker anymore. Like any speaker should be able to understand you. Maybe their mm. level is part of what makes it difficult, but you should still be able to negotiate for meaning with someone at a novice level. And so sort of all those things swirling around in my head, it's like, oh, I got to think about this. How am I really going to talk about comprehensibility with my students? I hear the theme over and over in talking with teachers, the inspiration that comes from their colleagues. And the fact that your go-to right away was to name two of your colleagues that you collaborate well with. And that that is so important. Those are the day-to-day people that they teach the the population we teach, the demographic we teach, the subjects we teach. And it's wonderful to have those people because you started off with the context. There's so many wonderful things on Twitter. And I could give you a million people that, well, not a million, but a a number of people that I follow and get Mm -hmm. a lot of inspiration from them. But sometimes it doesn't work within my context. Or sometimes it needs to be altered. And so being able to take what you see on Twitter or if you go to a workshop or if you go to a conference and bring it back and talk with your colleagues, I have a great boss. She's super flexible, super understanding. She loves to learn too. So we did a standards-based workshop this summer and all of a sudden we changed part of our grading policy. It was like, yes, we're making an impact here. Yeah, and ha- having colleagues that want to collaborate and not stay sort of stuck is so important as well. It's that teacher identity that I really appreciate amongst teachers and language teachers in particular. You know, they totally embrace the fact that they're a teacher. If you ask them about themselves, they tell you they're a teacher. They want you to know that. I'd like to take an opportunity right now to maybe take that identity and put it aside real quickly so that I and our listeners can get to know you, Becky, the person behind the teacher a little more. So what I'm going to do, and I hope you're up for it, is ask you a couple of this or that questions, just just sort of get some insights into different things about you, and then we'll go from there, okay? So here we go. Here's the first question. Call or text? Text, definitely. I um, I love to see people when I talk with them because body language and affect, those are like so important to the conversation. 
And so I'd either love to strip everything away and just say a couple of words and make it quick, or I want to be in person. Okay, next one here. Spring or fall? Um, I would say spring. We have done a lot of work in our garden over the past years. I love being a city girl and like that's where my heart is, but my husband moved us out to the burbs. So we're beekeepers and we have like a vegetable garden and spring is when all of that begins. And when you start deciding what flowers you're going to have for the season, it's the end of the school year. You start thinking about your fun plans for summer. So I think like that rebirth and that like awakening, that freshening of air and just life you get outside. It's just so joyful. Wow. See, learning, you're a beekeeper. As we wrap up here, uh, if we have teachers that are listening who are using rubrics, they, they're, they're thinking about using them, they want to use them more effectively. What's your, what's your advice about jumping into this rubric world? Where do I start? I would start with a real good reflection on why you're using rubrics. What is your reason? What is your goal with rubrics? Because if your goal is just to slap a grade on an assignment, then I wouldn't suggest you go down the rubric path because it does take some time. But if you really think about what your grading philosophy is, what you want to do, and make sure that that's at the heart of your rubrics, and then you work with students um, using non-judgmental language and student-friendly language and just talk back and forth, like, did this work for you? Being open and honest in those ways, I think, is really helpful. And so having that back and forth with students and letting yourself not do the best job at the beginning and then kind of regroup and start over. I think that's something humanizing about us. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. I learned so much about just sort of simplifying my rubrics to get to the essentials of what they are. And I'm sure that's what a lot of teachers are going to be pulling from this. So is there somewhere out there in the social media world where teachers can connect with you if they want to either talk about uh, French Polynesia or maybe rubrics? Yeah. So on Twitter, I'm at BBR La Prof, L-A-P-R-O-F. For those of you who are French teachers, that's super simple. Um, and then you can also find me on Facebook with my name. Um, and then I think my email is pretty readily available. That's bray.rebecca at gmail.com. So you can reach out to me in any of those three ways. And I'd love to chat with you. I got some really useful takeaways from that conversation with Becky all about rubrics. For me personally, I'm going to start to look at simplifying my rubrics a little more, taking out words that aren't necessary so that students can understand them and they're really useful for them. I also need to keep in mind that idea of feed forward and not just feedback so students can actually continue to learn based on that feedback. Be sure to check the show notes where you can connect with Becky. There's also a link to sign up for my weekly newsletter, Talking Points, where you'll get tips throughout the week and you'll also know when new episodes of the podcast come out. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, WLClassroom.com.